be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl! Are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Mutiny Radio listener, it's that time of year again. March 1st through 5th, it's time for the 4th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Over 40 comics, 25 shows, 5 days, all here at Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street. 25 shows, 5 days, amazing comics from all over the United States here in San Francisco to entertain you with 25 differently themed shows hosted by local San Francisco comedians bringing you comedians from all over the United States here. Everything will be live, live streaming and podcast post. Get your tickets, $10 a show, 25 shows, a million laughs. It's the fourth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival brought to you by Benders, Counter Offer and Subliminal SF.
on the leaves and blood at the root black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees
diciendo que me puedo organizar y el idioma no es excusa para mi derechos pelear para defender la dignidad y proteger el bienestar es nuestra unión la que nos da fuerza de pueblo que no se sabe Okay, this is the B, and welcome. Welcome to Labor and Love Radio, the uh, the place where we tell you how it is. We're here on Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, and we tell you how it is, okay? We're pulling your coat. This is how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you live, you're on the menu. Other people are talking about your time here on earth and what they're going to do with it. Third, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And welcome on a Saturday morning, one day before the uh, Roman version of Easter Sunday. I say that because I was raised in uh, the Greek church. So our Sunday is... Easter Sunday is a little different. And this year it's going to be next week, next Sunday. So anyway, happy Easter to everybody out there. Have a great day. Spend time with kids. We've got quite a bit here today. I want to talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. A pivotal, tragic Occurrence in 1911. Karen Silkwood, we started on her last week and uh, didn't get very far. I want to get further on with Karen Silkwood. uh, A very important case uh, for anyone who's thinking about nuclear energy and unions, what people can do. We're going to hear from Fruit of Labor. This is a this is a cultural musical organization in North Carolina that produce records and uh, I mean songs, <laughs> records. Everybody hear that? Uh, songs, music, uh, and they're right on the money in terms of their analysis. Uh, we'll play some of them. Charles Mingus 
before he died, I had gotten with Joni Mitchell, and they were working on a couple of you know real high-sounding projects. They were going to put T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets to music. Anyway, an album did come out of that uh, after Mingus' death called Mingus, and we're going to play a couple of songs from there. As always, our credos, you know, people are upset about uh, the strangest things. Who is Vito Marcantonio? Very few people remember him or know uh, who he was. He was a socialist congressman from East Harlem. I'm going to talk a little about Vito. We have a famous gun shop sketch by Richard Pryor. We have Congresswoman Katie Porter from Irvine <clears throat> questioning Jamie Diamond, <clears throat> financial powerhouse head of... Uh, oh, I better not get this wrong. I'm not going to try <laughs> in hearing. Who is Jack Ma anyway? Why does Jack Ma want you to work 12 hours a week, 12 hours a day, six days a week? Why does he think that's good for you? And so much more. Um, so our opening, our opening set today um, the most recent one, the one you heard, was Trabajo en el Hotel. And I spent a, a night in a big hotel recently. And uh, there are so many people who are, quote-unquote, invisible. <coughs> Pardon me. They're in their uniforms, so that makes them invisible as human beings. Or... <coughs> It tends to. <clears throat> so that's the reality. The day-to-day -day reality is that there's this really nice package there. <clears throat> Pardon me. There's this whole package prepared for you. You go upstairs, somebody carries your bag up for you. He's in a uniform or she. The person at the desk is in a uniform. You go marching up the stairs or the elevator, right? And go to your room. It's all laid out beautifully as it never is <laughs> at your house. It's all laid out beautifully, you know? Everything's clean and new. And uh, everything is uh, everything is luxurious. That's that's what it, it's approaching. All that is done by people. That whole package, that whole prepared, you know, beautiful hotel room. Then you get you go eating. You have people waiting on you. You have uh, cooks in the back. Trabajo en el Hotel by Francisco Herrera. Before that, we had the 
classic, classic uh, protest song, pop protest, if you will. It's in a jazz idiom, a pop song idiom. Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. And this was occasioned by the fact that I saw the movie Gone with the Wind, which up until a few years ago, most people would say was the greatest American movie. And if it wasn't Gone with the Wind, before that it was Birth of a Nation. And Gone with the Wind tended to it was told from the point of view of a white woman of means in the Old South. And uh, her point of view is she tries to catch boyfriends and tries to finagle to get next to the man she loves. And it's all told in a background of uh, first slavery, second reconstruction, third the white backlash when the country decided not to support freed freed slaves. Um, so this is my response to that movie because you get carried away with the movie. Oh, what a wonderful time. There's Ashley Wilkes and they're all eating barbecue and everybody's treating one another, you know, with such cordiality and what a wonderful time, a dream. No, that dream time never was. All that depended on terrorism. So, hence Strange Fruit. And before that, the Honky Tonk, a nice way to start a Saturday morning, nice, easygoing riff with uh, Bill Doggett. The Honky Tonk. Okay, so hope you had a good week and good work. Let's listen to our uh, worldwide labor news on Radio Labor. Uh, Radio Labor is put out by a worldwide labor organization. Every week we tune in to see what's This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, April 19th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, Labor's Manifesto for the 21st Century is presented to the UN's General Assembly. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and rapping. No more division, no, we're bringing a new vision And it's just in time from ashes we give birth A new tradition, solidarity forever With a new millennium flavor This is Radio Labor Labor is not a commodity Labor standards and rights Cannot be mitigated or denied by the market That is Sharon Burrow The General Secretary of the International Union Confederation. She was addressing the General Assembly of the United Nations. The ITUC is the body which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress at the world level. 
It is using the 100th anniversary of the UN's International Labor Organization to call for a new social contract and a labor guarantee for all workers. The ILO is the UN agency focused on matters of work in the world. It was created in 1919 by governments, employer organizations, and labor unions to help guide the world towards peace. It was renewed after the Second World War and released its Declaration of Philadelphia, which focused on human rights and the need for a fair global economic order. In recognition of its work, the ILO was awarded the 1969 Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think I need to convince any of you that an ILO fit for the 21st century is critical. The challenges today are sadly as severe as the world saw in 1919. We face historic levels of inequality, a failed model of globalisation, increasing conflict and military spending, displacement of people at levels never seen before, the climate crisis and massive disruption from technology. The central question is, can we achieve the consensus of today's leaders across government, employers, trade unions, to ensure the rights and social justice envisioned by the ILO Constitution after the turmoil of World War I and that of the Philadelphia Declaration following the Great Depression and the social and economic devastation of that? Can we do that for the new standards we need to meet the serious challenges of this century? The magnificent vision of leaders a hundred years ago and the social and economic successes built through the respect for the unique tripartite mandate of the ILO that established a floor, a global floor of labour standards, a guarantee for decent work is floundering. Since the 1980s, we've seen the erosion of this social contract. Consequently, while the world is three times richer than it was just over 20 years ago, inequality is now an overwhelming global risk. More people go to bed hungry than have been lifted out of extreme poverty. The concentration of wealth has been fueled by a corporate greed of the giant corporations that has dire effects on both people, small to medium enterprises and sustainable economic futures. Up to 94% of workers in global supply chains on whom the wealth is built are a hidden workforce, obscuring the low wage, insecure, often unsafe work that is the basis, even now with informal and modern slavery, at the heart of profit from global trade in the real economy. If you add to this the evidence of a global slump in wages and collective bargaining, then you have both stagnant demand and emerging social unrest in too many countries. The floor of security with minimum wages is far below the promises of the ILO Constitution and the Declaration of Philadelphia for living wages, because the rights to freedom of association and collective bargaining are increasingly denied. 60% of the global workforce is in informal work, and with progress for women stagnant, working people have simply lost trust in institutions, in globalisation, even in too many cases, democracy itself. This model of globalisation has also been at the centre of the theft of tax dollars 
which has denied governments the resources for social protection flaws and vital public services. The consequence of all this, the growing cracks in the global economy, where demand is undermined and unbalanced, has simply also denied equal development. So the failure of the social contract with this model of globalisation has put both people and the global economy, along with multilateralism, at risk. And today, without the guarantees of just transition measures for climate and technological shifts, where we indeed leave no one behind, we put at risk further social cohesion. It's simply time for a new social contract, a renewed social contract. Time to realise SDG 8 and related goals. The promise of the centenary declaration to be negotiated at the ILO conference to ensure a human-centred agenda for the next century. The recommendations of the ILO Commission report on the future of the economy require us to agree on the fundamentals. It requires a reaffirmation of the independence and the mandate of the ILO as per its constitution and the Philadelphia Declaration. It also requires a commitment to fundamental rights, social justice and decent work detailed in the subsequent recommendations. At its heart for Labor, a new social contract for governments, business and workers with a universal labour guarantee that provides a protection floor for all workers, informal work, platform work, direct employment, all workers. It means that rights will be respected, jobs will be decent with minimum living wages and collective bargaining, workers have some control over working time, social protection coverage is universal. Due diligence and accountability drive business operations. Women's equality is realised and social dialogue ensures just transition measures, including skills and, of course, including just transition measures for climate, technology and displaced people. We need to recognise that the global disruption of digitalisation and emerging business models without enforced employment responsibilities requires new approaches probably new standards, with the UN Authority also looking at where the management of data and privacy should be mandated. But it also, for working people, for our people, requires a floor of rights and distributions. That's something that employers, workers and governments share a responsibility for, and we would want to see that respect extended today. We failed in the 90s, but extended today across all multilateral institutions, a fair competition floor where respect for rights and distributions is in fact at the heart of the Bretton Woods Institution, the WTO and other UN agencies. We need simply a human-centred century. The preamble to the ILO constitution states that the failure of any nation to adopt humane conditions of labour is an obstacle in the way of other nations which desire to improve the conditions in their own countries. In other words, ensuring decent work is a joint endeavour. Labour is not a commodity. Labour standards and rights cannot be mitigated or denied by the market. We ask you all to support a new social contract to mark this century for the ILO and the promise fulfilled of the dignity of work. Our sons and daughters deserve no less. 
Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a tiny sample of the hundreds of union news stories in 31 languages added to our site each day last week. Our top story section included links to coverage of the organizing efforts being made by British sex workers, concern for the future of the safety accord covering the Bangladeshi garment industry, and a profile of the woman who won this year's Arthur Svensson Prize for her workers' rights work in the Philippines. Great news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Portuguese teachers held a one-day warning strike on Monday in support of their wage demands. On Sunday night, emergency healthcare workers in Paris declined administrative work for 12 hours as part of their struggle to reduce their workload and ensure a safe workplace. Doctors in Haiti have been holding a symbolic strike over inadequate healthcare funding for the past three weeks now. Their medical colleagues in Mexico surprised observers by joining the national wave of wage strikes there. The strikes, which began in the special economic zones along the border with the United States, started with car assembly plant workers and have spread to many other sectors, including not just health care but also education, as the election of a social democratic president released long-suppressed demands for improved wages and working conditions. Workers at New Zealand's iconic bakery chain Big Ben's were picketing as part of their union strategy to win a significant wage increase. A wage dispute brought a huge oil refinery in the Netherlands to a standstill. And finally, workers at four Amazon warehouses in Germany struck for a day in their ongoing wage struggle. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the introduction of maternity safety wear after a study by the United Kingdom's TUC disclosed that women were losing career opportunities because of a lack of personal protective wear suitable for use during pregnancy. The gender-specific hazards that workers on Costa Rican pineapple plantations are exposed to and how and why women in Europe form the majority of precarious workers in the so-called gig economy. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the call by Australian transport unions for a safe weekend and an examination of the deaths of 10 Chinese workers in the course of a normal workday. Currently, Labor Start is running five online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Ruben Benny Esguera with a new version of Solidarity Forever. Uh, no more division, no, we're bringing a new vision And it's just in time from ashes we give birth a new tradition Solidarity forever with a new millennium flavor Now we're resurrecting it, keep our feet fixed on the past In order to stay rooted in our minds, eye on tomorrow So that today we get through this, so that one day we're victorious So just gather now, come here Divisions are created by those who doubt and fear We give thanks to all the workers who put it all on the line Those who took it to the streets, moving crowds with conscious rhymes Those who gave their lives, give thanks to those who made lost Lots only work for those who make them not break and be patient The best way to protect your rights Is by always knowing your rights Without our brain and muscle Not a single wheel can turn So put your hands together All under one umbrella It's time for unity Solidarity forever Feel me? 
never seen to help the people prosper. Your money's being hoarded and the people are unsupported. Social welfare's been aborted, labor crimes go unreported. When we try to fight back, it seems we can't afford it. We try to be united, but they're implementing laws that are keeping us divided. They're commodifying labor, then they're bidding for the lowest. They're thinking that it's clever, but we know it's something better. Solidarity forever. Now jobs are disappearing and all we're ever hearing is pay a lot more, get paid a little less. Work a little harder, then work a little longer, but we're taking it no longer. We're decided we're uniting, cause together we are stronger. The unions got our back, CBAs, protections, better wages, a fact. So we're making our choice and we're making some noise. We're walking with poise and we're raising our voice. We're singing. The new Solidarity Forever was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that was Radio Labor. Radio Labor. <clears throat> we we um, excuse me. We throw that your way every week, and I just want to jump off from that about a little article about worldwide global organizing, as the man says, global solidarity is the way to to combat the threat of multinational corporations. Um, from Portside, and it says, Workers of the World Unite at Last, it's written by Ronaldo Monk on the Portside website. Mention the labor movement today and activists might ask what movement? Indeed, the vibrant labor movement of yesteryear when workers in industrializing countries organized their factories had ebbed with the onslaught of neoliberal globalization. The retreat can make Marx's call of workers of the world unite seemed quaint, and the International Labor Congress that launched the first international in 1864, a quixotic dream. The labor parties that once promised to empower the average worker now are often the agents of austerity and the allies of global capital. <clears throat> out of the social demo democratic movements that uh, that were in vogue in the 20th century, 
were wiped away by greed, by the market economy, by the idea that uh, you should get all the money you can. Don't give any extra money to your workers. In fact, bust them. Bust them back to where they're coming up and begging for work. Social Democratic parties and even conservative parties built robust welfare states. And across North America, labor held a cherished and comfortable spot along with business and state. The forward march of labor appeared to halt in the face of disruptions caused by globalization. Austerity, privatization, and deflationary monetary policy wreaked havoc on unions worldwide. Margaret Thatcher's famous TIMA drop victim. There is no alternative. It was not just a slogan of the elite, but a pervasive mood in society as trade union membership declined and the links between unions and progressive political parties frayed, many began to question whether a labor movement still existed. The new landscape of global labor points to at least two conclusions. First, analysts who insisted on the terminal decline of labor were wrong, and that's obvious. Um, all over the country, teachers in, in the reddest of states and the bluest of states have gone on strike, whether they have unions or not. This is happening. We're going to describe a very big strike at uh, Stop and Shop. We'll get on to that. Since 2000, transnational labor organization has been on the rise, spawning new structures and organizing techniques. Second, although a truly global labor market has not yet emerged outside of a few restricted sectors, what we might call a common global working condition has coalesced. Consider, for example, the spread of precarious work, a condition once limited primarily to the so-called developing world. Prevailing conditions on the ground support the development of a transnational labor strategy and a credible change agent to contest the new globalized capitalism. Okay, the... Uh, the article goes on, and so check it out. It's at Portside, and it's Workers of the World Unite at Last. Time for some music of social significance. Thank you. 
Estoy pidiendo joyas, ni pieles ni palacios, ni quiero que me alfombren las calles al pasar. Tampoco es que yo exija ni tierras ni riquezas, más que está recibiendo. Tan solo estoy pidiendo Sentirme bien amada Que me amen como yo amo Con fuego y con pasión Ojalá comprendiera Que estoy desesperada Buscando quien se entregue Como me entrego yo
Okay, that was a lengthy, a lengthy set. Um, I put in uh, Jenny Rivera with her ni princesa ni esclava. I'm neither a princess or a slave. I'm just a woman. Before that, Left Eye and her band TLC with Waterfalls. About a mom who's trying to keep her son from the uh, inevitable... Um, gang activity in the neighborhood. She's saying, stay away from the middle of the river. Stay back where it's easy and and you don't uh, risk anything when the current can't get you. And hard for the money, Donna Summer, again referring to those invisible people who make the world nice and pretty for you so you can take photos and look good and the world look good behind you and the first in that set was goodbye pork pie hat part of Joni Mitchell uh, Charles Mingus collaboration at the end of Mingus's life uh, Mingus habitually wore a pork pie hat and uh, was born in Arizona And uh, he, he said that uh, his maternal grandfather was a Chinese-British subject from Hong Kong. His maternal grandmother was an African-American from the southern United States. He was the third great-grandson of the family's founding patriarch, who was by no, most accounts a German immigrant. He also had Native American ancestors. And uh, Mingus was raised in Arizona and uh, had a hard childhood, lack of education, became a jazz prodigy, prodigy eventually. Started playing the cello and... Uh, Eventually, the cello was not recognized as a jazz instrument, so he switched to the bass and became a, a prodigy of sorts. Uh, someone who became, uh, played with Louis Armstrong when he was 20, uh, worked with jazz people like Bill Davis, Chico Hamilton, uh, Lionel Hampton in the late 40s. Uh, Hampton played several of Mingus's pieces. Red Norvo, Duke Ellington. Mingus's anger was legendary and it caused him to be kicked out of the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Ellington was one of his idols, but they clashed. Mingus' notorious temper led to his being one of the few musicians personally fired by Duke Ellington. Uh, 
after an on-stage fight between Mingus and Juan Tissol. Uh, worked with Charlie Parker. Uh, rejoined Ellington's band in 1953. Um, statement was... In response to many sax players who had imitated Charlie Parker, Mingus titled one of his songs, If Charlie Parker Were a Gunslinger, There'd Be a Whole Lot of Dead Copycats. Uh, late in his life, he lived in uh, Carmel, Larry Mit Joni Mitchell, commuted back and forth to Mexico looking for cures to uh, lateral sclerosis, ALS. Uh, lost the ability to play his instrument, but kept composing. Died in 1977 in Cuernavaca, Mexico, where he had traveled for treatment and convalescence. Uh, Mingus was a militant militant uh, black man, man who was, I think a lot of jazz aficionados consider him the greatest bassist of all time. Uh, we'll be playing some more, some more things about Mingus. March 25th, 1911. So March 25th was the 108th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Fifth, 1911. The go. ninth floor of the Ash Building. The workers of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company are preparing to leave. They have worked a long week, 52 hours, making the blouses that have come to symbolize practical, independent womanhood. As they collect their hats and their coats, they chat about Sunday plans. They are almost all women, mostly Jews who fled Tsarist atrocities and environmental refugees from Italy. Here in America, they found opportunities they'd never known. In 30 minutes, 146 of them will be dead. It begins with a spark. On the eighth floor, someone tosses a cigarette in a bin filled with cloth scraps and tissue paper patterns. By the time men get the fire buckets, flames are licking the rows of shirtwaists hanging overhead. Twists of ash fall into scrap bins and land on the oil-soaked floor. Frantic, people pile into the rickety fire escape. Others run to the Washington Street staircase, but it's locked. Management likes to force employees to leave via the Green Street stairs so they can search workers for stolen cloth. A floor manager shoves the women aside and opens the door, saving them, but the fire is close behind. Flames are spreading, sucking up the building stairwells. A telephone operator warns the executives on the 10th floor. The factory owners evacuate to the roof, barely escaping. But no one warns the 9th floor. There, workers discover the danger when flames begin to lick the windows. Everything happens too fast. Flames block the Green Street stairs. Workers pile onto the fire escape, but it collapses, spilling 20 people down an air shaft. 
Trapped girls tear at the locked Washington Street door. Their clothes and hair begin to catch. Flames press them toward the walls and windows. Heroic elevator operators make as many trips as they can, but the heat warps their rails and the cars stall. Desperate women jump down the shaft, trying to slide down the cables. On the street, hundreds of onlookers gather to watch the fire. Above, they can see workers gathering at the windows and on the ledges. The fire department arrives, but their tallest ladder only reaches the sixth floor. The girls begin to jump, landing hard on the street or impaling themselves on a pointed fence. One young man at the window helps girls up onto the sill one after another, as if lifting them onto a streetcar. When the final girl comes, they share one last kiss before they jump. On the other side of the building, the huddle of bodies pushing away from the flames finally bursts the windows. Thirty-three people, some already burning, fall to the pavement. It was over. When police count the bodies, they find 146 people dead on the street or charred on the factory floor. Most of them are women in their teens or early 20s. The youngest is 14. Among the crowd watching is Francis Perkins of the Consumers League. Perkins is part of a new generation of progressive activists, college-trained social scientists who seek change through studying problems, marshalling data, and writing reports. For the last four months, she's been studying a factory fire in Newark that killed 25 workers. Her conclusion, that American factories need evacuation plans, adequate fire escapes, and sprinkler systems, have just played out before her eyes. At that moment, she swore this would never happen again. And she wasn't the only one. Public outcry followed the fire, because these were no ordinary workers. The previous year, they had staged a major strike, seeking shorter hours, better pay, and the ability to form unions. The factory bosses, led by Triangle owners Max Blank and Isaac Harris, had hired gangsters and prostitutes to assault them on the picket line. At one point, gangsters had ambushed the strike's leader, Clara Limlick, and broke six of her ribs. The garment workers had become heroes, with newspapers dubbing their movement the Uprising of the 20,000. They won shorter hours and higher wages, but now those same girls were lying dead on the street, waiting for relatives to identify their scorched remains. The public howled for justice. When the garment union staged a funeral march through New York City, 120,000 people showed up to the march, and another 300,000 watched. But Blank and Harris were acquitted of manslaughter. They paid out a pittance in a civil suit and got a windfall in insurance money. The unions decided to take matters into their own hands. They demanded an independent committee focused on safety reforms and prepared to take on an insurmountable opponent, Tammany Hall. Tammany, New York's political machine. But Tammany wasn't much interested in policies and reforms. Instead, Tammany existed to make money through corruption. Its head, Boss Murphy, controlled city and state politics. Tammany politicians were pro-business and sworn enemies of unions and reformers like Perkins. During the garment strike, they had sided with the owners. It was Tammany cops that harassed workers on the picket line and Tammany gangsters that broke Clara Limlick's ribs. Most activists thought that this was a fight that couldn't be won. Tammany, they said, only listens to money. But Perkins wasn't so sure. Years before, she had championed a bill limiting women and minors to a 54-hour workweek, and she had received support from Al Smith, a rising Tammany star. He had killed the bill when Boss Murphy told him to, of course, but she suspected that Smith could be convinced, and he was now the head of the state assembly. 
But when Perkins pushed for a factory investigation committee, Smith shot it down. The legislature wouldn't listen to an outside commission. However, he added, a hybrid body made up of legislators and with the political support of Tammany, that could get results. The reformers agreed, reluctantly, expecting Smith to defang the body. But things were changing at Tammany. Boss Murphy had quietly been pushing for reform. He had watched New York progressives make gains, catapulting Theodore Roosevelt to the White House. He saw the explosion of enthusiasm during the garment workers' strike, and Tammany was getting killed in state elections. Their old base of Irish immigrants was moving out of Tammany districts, replaced by Jewish and Italian voters who they had a hard time connecting with. Murphy slowly replaced the old guard with men like Smith, men who wanted to do more than just give out coal in the winter or a bit of money in hard times, men who wanted legislation that would actually improve their constituents' lives. As it happened, many of the Triangle victims lived in Tammany districts, and they were exactly the groups Murphy had struggled to reach. He ordered Smith to take a stand on Triangle. From now on, Tammany would be the party of workers. The Factory Commission proved anything but toothless. They built an investigation and legal team from a who's who of progressive activists. The socialist firebrand Clara Limlick, the head of the shirtwaist strike, came aboard as an investigator. The head of the Women's Trade Union League joined as one of the expert commissioners. Francis Perkins helped recruit, train, and supervise investigators. The results came fast. In the first six months, the commission collected 3,500 pages of testimony from 222 witnesses. Its 10 investigators fanned out, inspecting 2,000 factories in nine cities. What the legislators saw shocked them. Triangle was not an anomaly. In one factory, the passage to the fire escape was no bigger than a hatch. Perkins forced the head of the state senate to crawl through it. They raided a cannery where children were forced to work until they passed out from exhaustion. In one shop, a factory owner tried to hide his child laborers by packing them into an elevator and then stopping it between floors. By the end of 1911, commission legislators drafted 15 new bills covering fire safety, factory conditions, and employment rules for women and children. Eight of those bills became law. Automatic sprinklers, fire drills, and fireproof stairwells were now mandatory in high-rises. All exit doors had to stay unlocked. It addressed every hazard at Triangle. Yet the appetite for reform kept growing. When Perkins made a new push for her 50-hour workweek bill, Boss Murphy tried to kill it with an unexpected late-night vote, but Tammany legislators revolted, stalling until a key legislator could sprint all the way back to the Capitol and cast the winning ballot. The winds were shifting. Reluctantly, Boss Murphy adopted the progressive agenda of the Factory Commission. The result was a landslide in the 1913 elections. One after another, commission bills passed. The commission dissolved in 1915, with 36 of its bills enshrined in law. In addition to fire safety, they protected child workers, created a Department of Labor, mandated that employers provide restrooms, and founded a workman's compensation system for those injured on the job. Within four years of the fire, New York had the strongest labor laws in the nation. This political earthquake remade American politics and propelled Smith to the governor's mansion. More importantly, it laid the groundwork for a new form of liberal politics that another New York Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt, would carry into the White House. And that's not all he carried with him. 
Key factory commission members became FDR's allies in the Senate, and Frances Perkins joined the administration as his Secretary of Labor, making her the first woman to serve in the cabinet. Former commission members helped craft the New Deal, much of which was just a federal version of the laws they'd passed in the wake of the Triangle Fire. The lives lost, indeed, had not been in vain. Even though the Triangle Fire happened over a century ago, the laws it created are still with us, and they have saved thousands of lives. In fact, apart from the September 11th attacks, to this day, America has never had a workplace disaster as deadly as Triangle. So, when you're faced with a horrible social problem, one that people say can't be solved because of apathy or powerful interests, remember the Triangle and get to work. Triangle shirt waist, uh, important event in U.S. history because it, I mean, it shattered the innocence, I guess. I guess uh, people didn't understand what working conditions were at these factories. And all of a sudden here it becomes public news, you know, they... They didn't want the doors open because they were afraid the uh, workers would take breaks that were too long. Um, these were two of the owners who resisted, who resisted uh, the settlement that the great strike of 20,000 had made the year before. And Certain reforms were put into place, but these two owners didn't didn't apply them to their factory. 146 people died because they couldn't get out of a burning building because their movements were so restricted and the architecture of the place was so restrictive to free passage, I guess. Um, Someone described the sound of the young women hitting the street as they had jumped and tried to save themselves from the fire. Okay, we've got Katie Porter now. I didn't know who Katie Porter was, but when you hear this, hopefully you'll put her into your mind <laughs> as an effective uh, representative. She's talking to President Jamie Dimon, the billionaire bank CEO. And uh, this I is spent thirty-one million dollars a year in salary, and you can't figure out how to make up a five hundred and sixty-seven dollar a month shortfall. This is a budget problem you cannot solve. Katie Porter asked a bank billionaire. You're an expert on financial statements reach. and you run a $2.6 trillion bank. I know you're good at numbers and you've shared lots of opinions recently about how the U.S. should budget its resources, how families should budget their resources. And so I'd like to ask for your help on a problem. 
I went to Monster.com and I found a job in my hometown of Irvine at J.P. Morgan Chase. It pays $16.50 an hour. Um, and so I wondered if I could, um, if you'd indulge me, um, when you do the math on this and you do the $16.50 out at 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, it comes out to an income of $35,070. Now this bank teller, her name is Patricia. She has one child who's six years old. She claims the one dependent after tax. She has $29,100. We divide that by 12. She rents a one-bedroom apartment. She and her daughter sleep together in the same room. In Irvine, California, that average one-bedroom apartment is gonna be $1,600. She spends $100 on utilities. Take away the $1,700, and she has net $725. She drives a 2008 minivan and has gas, $400 for car expenses and gas, net $325. The Department of Agriculture says a low-cost food budget, that is ramen noodles, a low food budget is $400. That leaves her $77 in the red. She has a Cricut cell phone, the cheapest cell phone she can get for $40. She's in the red $117 a month. She has after-school childcare because the bank is open during normal business hours. That's $450 a month. That takes her down to negative $560. $67 per month. My question for you, Mr. Diamond, is how should she manage this budget shortfall while she's working full-time at your bank? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Would you recommend that she take out a J.P. Morgan Chase credit card and run a deficit? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Would you recommend that she overdraft at your bank and be charged overdraft fees? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. So, I know you have a lot I'd of to call up and have a conversation about her financial affairs and see if we can be helpful. See if you can find a way for her to live on less than the minimum that I've described. Just be helpful. Well, I appreciate your desire to be helpful, but what I'd like you to do is provide a way for families to make ends meet. So the little kids who are six years old living in a one-bedroom apartment with their mother aren't going hungry at night because they're $567 short from feeding themselves, clothing them. We allow no money for clothing. We allow no money for school lunches. We allow no money for field trips, no money for medical, no money for prescription drugs, nothing. And she's short $567 already. Mr. Diamond, you know how to spend $31 million a year in salary, and you can't figure out how to make up a $567 a month shortfall. This is a budget problem you cannot solve. Okay, that was Representative Katie Porter from Irvine, California, raising the issue of a livable wage, confronting the president of J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, who's sort of like the cool banker, the eloquent banker, the guy who knows how to talk to the press, the guy who handles PR, kind of a glamorous guy as bankers go. And uh, she put him through his paces. Wake up, guy. Do you care about this? No. Diamond can't do anything. He can't say anything because under capitalism, the game is be as greedy as you can. Pay your workers as little as you can. Here's a guy, Jack Ma. Jack Ma is a Chinese uh, capitalist. And he, he has a system, he says, called 996. 
okay? 996, also a member of the Communist Party, by the way. Um, he's spoken out on social media in recent days to support the Chinese work practice known as 996. The number refers to working from 9 to 9 p.m., 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, and is said to be common among the country's big technology companies and startup. If we find things we like, 996 is not a problem, he says. So if you have a job you like, it's, it's a privilege to work 996, right? That's 12 times 6, that's 72. 72 hours a week. Ma said that he did not intend to defend the practice of working long hours, but wanted to pay tribute to employees who did. Real 996 is not simply overtime work. Adding that everyone has the right to choose their own lifestyle, but those who work shorter hours won't taste the happiness and rewards of hard work. I personally think that 996 is a huge bl blessing. How do you achieve the success you want without paying extra effort and time? Of course, Mr. Ma is <laughs> not taking into account that working 996 doesn't get you anywhere because you don't own anything. It doesn't get you anywhere. I wonder how often Mr. Ma works a 996 week. A spokesman for Alibaba, that's his company, did not immediately respond to a, success, a request for comment on Ma's social media posts or the company's policy on overtime. Long weekdays in the high-tech sector are not unique to China. Tesla co-finder Elon Musk has previously said he worked up to 120 hours per week when the electric vehicle maker struggled with production delays. Of course he did. It's his company. Of course, he doesn't want it to fail. He's not working, by the way, for a, a wage that the workers are. There are easier places to work, but nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. Ah, so that's our job now. We're getting paid sh shit wages to change the world and to change the world so that Mr. Musk and Mr. Ma will make more money. Jack Ma. As I say, don't worry about the labor movement. Don't worry about... You know, unions are one thing, but the labor movement, the resentment that's built up in workers is caused by corporate greed. And corporate greed and the greed of these men cause the situations that create labor movements. Judges give workers wins over anti-union right-wingers. 
State judges in Missouri have given workers there two more wins against anti-union schemes propagated by the radical right, the state's ruling Republicans and their corporate backers. St. Louis County Judge Joseph Walsh III halted one of the schemes, the so-called Paycheck Protection legislation, which forces workers one by one to decide yearly whether they want union dues automatically deducted from paychecks. Paycheck deception law also forces unions to stand for recertification by members unit by unit every three years with an absolute majority. So if there's an election with a thousand people involved and only 500 show up to vote, you're supposed to be able to win the half of the whole thousand, not just the people who vote. And it bans the right to strike and the right to picket and says anyone doing so can be immediately fired. Taken together, Walsh wrote, that violates the Missouri Constitution's right of free speech and its explicit provision enacted in 1945 that says employees have the right to organize and bargain collectively through representatives of their own choosing. Meanwhile, Cole County Judge John Benteen stopped a state law making every state and local worker an at-will employee liable to immediate firing even for no reason at all, union contract or no. The latter law also let bosses give out so-called merit raises to their favorites. Both halts are temporary pending full judicial hearings. So we'll have to keep our eye on that for sure. Uh, here's a news item from WGBH Boston about the stop and shop strike. 240 stores across Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island went on strike Thursday. Here we go. Stop and shop of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union resumed this morning after the two groups failed to reach a deal over the weekend. Guys, kind of the 30,000 employees first walked off the job on Thursday after contract talks hit a standstill and workers objected to the company's terms for a new agreement. And while workers first voted to strike in February after the previous contract expired, last Thursday's decision forced several stores to close temporarily until Stop and Shop was able to bring in corporate personnel and other replacement workers to take over for the employees picketing outside who were joined by their families, customers, and even two Massachusetts U.S. Senators. Their strike is a strike for pensions, for health care, for their wages. Uh, they have to be protected. An issue for workers in the stop and shop proposals, a reduction in pension benefits for new hires, a 2 to $4 increase in what workers would have to pay for their health care premiums every week, and wage increases. Union reps say they've been offered just 50 cents an hour more, less than 2% raise, but even less, they argue, when new health costs are taken into account. Three stop and shop workers and members of the union join me now. Jose Lopes, Paul Batista, and Jim Griffin, thank you all for being here. Sure. I appreciate it. By the way, we invited representatives of stop and shop management to join us.
They declined, saying uh, there were ongoing negotiations. Can we just get online quickly so people get a sense? How long you worked in the place? 37 years. 37 years? Since I was 16 How old? Years old. 16? How about you? 41. How old were you? 17. And you? Uh, 34, but before that I worked for another supermarket chain. So and, what do you think? I'm 54. So you've been in supermarkets your whole life? Pretty much, yeah. And you two as, yes, well? as well? How have yeah. you felt? For, take away the last month or two. How have you felt about this employer for much of your decades there, starting with you, Jose? Uh, I'll tell you what. It was the best employee to work for. And you had to know someone in order to get hired. Why was it the best employer to work for? Well, because they took care of their employees. They took care of them. The Rabs, which are the founders, they took care of their employees. Did that ever change in your estimation? Yeah. When? Now? Why? When? Corporate greed. Simple. Plain and simple. Corporate greed. Well, three years ago, we voted to strike, and we've given up flyers. Uh, Six years ago, we voted to strike. And now, this time around, we're on strike. So it's gotten progressively worse. I mean... They're just looking for more and more takebacks now, and it's just going to, I mean, we're not going to go back to work unless we, we're not asking for anything extra. We just want what we have right now. Do you feel as positively about this workplace for all those years as Jose did? Um, I used to years ago in the last 10 years now. Last 10 years. Right. And how about you? I feel the same. You Absolutely. all felt really good about this employer. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, we wouldn't put our lives work into it if we, we, we didn't do that. We didn't you know, think so. one of the things that, that I'm not sure people out in the world understand is one of the major reasons you're striking is not about you it's about future workers at this place you don't want to have a separate kind of pension try to explain to the people at home why do you care about people who don't even exist yet well they exist but they don't exist at stop and shop why does that matter to you well look uh, the 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 minimum wage is going up 15 right and it's going to take a few years to get there well the stop and shop wants to cap your your pay at 18 You'll never make more than 18 because they're going to give you a bonus instead or give you whatever they want. But if you're taken care of adequately, what do you care about what the future Somebody took care of you. Somebody, somebody so it's just solidarity with that future Eventually worker? there's going to be Absolutely. no union there. I mean, that's all they're trying to do is weaken the union, get everyone to say, I don't care, I don't care, and cut the benefits, and no one's going to want to work So you there. think if that new, you were nodding in agreement, you think if that new worker has lesser benefits, there'll be yeah. less support for the union, Definitely. and then ultimately it ends up hurting you guys. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I hadn't seen that robot uh, I was going to say walking, rolling <laughs> Mar- down. Mar- the- Marty is a Marty, thank <laughs> you. I can't believe you refer to it right. by its actual name. Um, I didn't give it to him. Stop it, show. And, <laughs> and, and that little jitney thing right. that rides Let's assume, Paul, starting with you, let's assume your union is totally successful in this negotiation. Everything you're looking for is won before you decide to go back to work. Are you not worried that that future is marching in on you? Absolutely. Regardless. So yeah. how do you deal with technology? It's, you know, it, it, it like the video before showed it's all about the technology the future robots but there are companies today supermarket chains that they're all about customer service and they are very successful and you think the customer service depends on humans in that absolutely i mean 10 years ago there was no such thing as a self-service checkout people scanning their own orders it's just eliminating jobs that high school kid that was a cashier a bagger that they don't exist anymore but do you you worry jim that you're you're fighting off the inevitable that even if you're right on the merits that robot works for a lot less than you do right right and ultimately that maybe stop and shop i don't want to speak for them will say they'll get used to the robot because we're going to be able to keep prices yeah. down i assume that's what but, they'd argue but if they were sitting but this whole issue oh, is not about right. price yeah. it's not it's stop and shop is not uh, lowering the cost of food because of the of, of uh, labor's going down. Right. Going that they're getting more 
out of it. The profit they, margins stay yeah. the same. Yeah. The profit margins yeah. aren't going exactly. down because it's a robot. And not only that, is stop and shop is not is not listening to the customer, is teaching the customer how to shop. By the way, they made two billion dollars in profit last year. That's right. not a disputed right. figure. Two point two, I think it was. Right. You, are the customers with you? Do you think? Do you, do you, I'd say. About, I assume uh, if you've been decades in your store, you know right, most of the right. people walk in the door. Do I'd say about eighty percent of us, eighty percent of the customers are behind us. Do you um, both agree with that? Yes, you think absolutely. The best There's still people going least, to the picket yeah. line every day. I mean, it's mostly younger people. The millennials, they don't really care about unions. Right. I mean, they're, they're the biggest culprit walking through the door shopping. You know, I'm looking at the three of you, and you both look, I don't know you, before five minutes ago, you both, all three look pretty confident, but are you not worried about the future? I mean, oh, two absolutely. kinds of futures. Right, right. The future through the strike, the future. How worried are you about your own future? You spent your right. whole life working in right. supermarkets. You spent right. your whole lives working at Stop and Shop. How I have eight more years you? to work, and I don't know if I'll be working eight more years. So retire. what does that do to you? It scares me. I mean, my insurance, my benefits. I, I mean, I want to retire. I mean, I want to retire at some point. I don't want to keep working the rest of my life. Paul, you worried? Absolutely. What's that duty as a human, as a person? It's a, it's, it, I, I feel a, a sort of a betrayal, really. Absolutely. It's like, right. it, it's, you know, come on, we, we, we made what this company is today. If they treat you fairly at the end of the day, if this thing is resolved and you get the union gets essentially what it's looking for, does that betrayal stay, or do you have an ability to go back and feel good about this place yet again? That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's, I mean, it's going to take some time. I mean, so this has been poisoned, right? Right. In some ways, they, yeah. You get bad taste in the mouth. Stop and shop is poisoned the future because it shows yeah. they don't care about about human beings in the future. You know, I don't know how much you guys are making. You're not rich. I'm pretty sure that's the <laughs> right. case. Can you s stay out as long as the union, your fellow members say? Oh, I'll be out there. I'm not, there's no way I'm going back in that. Yeah. How about you? I'm, I'll be there. Oh, and you? I'll have to get two jobs to make what I make now, but I'll do it. And you think the vast majority of your 30,000 colleagues, fellow union members, oh, yeah, feel the definitely. same way? Yes. yes. There's a lot of fit the feeling, feeling of betrayal is out there. I mean, everyone's yeah, like, we, we, we can't believe it. I mean, we're not asking for much. Just give us what we had originally. They're just taking things away from us. Well, when, I wish all three of you luck, and I really okay. appreciate your time. Thank you. Jim, thank you yep, so much. You're welcome. Paul, Jose. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, that was a... Uh, that was a uh, spot from... the uh, WGBH in Boston, where the strike that um, encompasses 30,000 workers against a chain called Stop and Shop. And uh, these are three workers. These are three faithful workers. They've worked for 30, 40 years for a, pain, for a shop and save. And they're talking about the betrayal and the coming of machines which of robots which we're all going to have to face uh, okay let's do a couple more on the labor beat we got Jamie Diamond we got Jack here's a woman from Sweden and she's saying I live in Sweden we have social security affordable health care, strict gun laws, five weeks paid annual leave, and a year's maternity leave. A stay at the hospital for one night costs about $10. Prescription drugs have an annual cap of $210. 
We are not communists. We are socio-democratic and our freedoms are not inhibited. When will the U.S. grow up, I ask? Talking guns, anyone? Here's from the Richard Pryor show as a man goes through a gun shop. He's entering the store. Excuse me, man. I'm sorry. I was looking you talking at the... to me? No, I was looking at... Are the... you talking to me? No, I was looking at the gun and I backed... You must be talking to me, man. I was... Don't be talking to me, man. See that? Um, the guy, uh... He's around here all the time. Go ahead and look around. Help yourself. Oh, he... Take that kind of... I mean, you know what I mean? I was coming in and the guy gonna be just bumping. Neighborhood nut. Never touches anybody. Oh. Hey, boy, over here! So now the guns are talking to him. You don't want me! I don't like you, boy! Come on down to my part of the country. I'll show you law and order. That's right. I remember a couple freedom riders just like you. I showed them law and order, all right. That's right. And that was a gun talking to Richard Pryor. And uh, we'll get we'll get on to that uh, next week. As usual, I've got more things to talk about than I have time to talk about them. Uh, this is the B. This is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. We tell you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. We tell you if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Several things we haven't covered, our credo, for example. We can read one of them. So you're not that into politics? Your boss is landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power, political power, to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. Bye, everybody. Have a good week and good work.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is Darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF.
Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Bar and Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Novoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips. Don't know anything about it. Sorry. <laughs> All so, on my limited view. Yes, every Tuesday from 12 to 2. Uh, oh, you can if you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah, and Google Play. And Stitcher. iTunes. Oh, you already said that. TuneIn Radio. Uh, Stitcher, you said that. Spotify. Oh, my God, there's just so many. And Overcast. Um, yes, you can also find us on social media, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, P as in Peter, podcast, MOV podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your review. Yes. Bye. Bye. That kind of sucked balls. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? 
Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joe's workshop, there's more than two people paying attention to your joke, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl! Are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang damn thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I can tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the joke. Flat Black Blast, Mutiny Radio, that event, the special 420 Smoketacular. This is for the Albert Hoffman crew. <laughs> <laughs> 